Welcome to the Social Justice War Room, the podcast where we look at social justice in fiction, reality, and everything in between. My next guest has an incredible resume. They've done a lot of work across academia, criticism, poetry, and music. I came across their work on an impressive 20 essay collection on Grant Morrison's new X-Men, probably the peak of the entire franchise. Please welcome Travis Hedge Coke. How are you doing, Travis? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having me. So current, your current project on your Comic Watch blog is Us Living in Fictional Cosmogenies, which takes a look at a very wide array of different shows and books. For people in the audience who don't know what the word cosmogony means, who are also me, what is the definition you're going with? So um, a cosmogony is traditionally the universe uh, in an idea of the universe uh, and the beginnings of the universe. In academe, it's often also encompassing a group of gods or a group of or, or a creation myth of some sort. And so looking at fictional realities, uh, specifically or franchise realities, I, you kind of expand cosmogony out to be the purpose of those universes. So not, not so much the cosmogony of our universe may be the Big Bang Theory or uh, a religious idea of you know, the fundament, fundamentals of the universe. But for a franchise fictional reality, like a, a television program or something that's in many areas like Star Wars, I wanted to start with that. What is its purpose? What was its purpose in creation? And yeah, so for example, you did one on the Smurfs and you mentioned that the order of that universe prevents the Smurfs from ever actually learning and growing beyond their roles. For example, Grouchy Smurf will always be grouchy and any events in which he tries to chill out a bit, the universe will conspire against him to return him to that attitude. Yeah, many, many of the many of those franchise realities, um, especially the ones that make for good toys or make for good greeting cards like the Smurfs, the universe itself makes sure that everyone stays in their niche and that things don't change too much, which I find really interesting when we apply that to our world and the way that society uh societies or governments or institutions operate yeah and it definitely seems to raise a question of how much free will any of us including in our world have when mm -hmm. there are so many forces stacked against that but that's i hope we have more free will to fight against that order against this than the smurfs so hopefully so yes i i was really surprised um many of the different universes that we look at in us living were recommended to me i picked about 20 of them and we cover we're gonna cut well we have or will cover 32 chapters of universes but really i think we go in for something closer to 50 different universes and the smurfs had been recommended to me that was one that was recommended to me so i did kind of a deep dive uh you know trying not to make it a nostalgia trip and i was genuinely surprised how xenophobic smurfs were in several um media uh, the cartoon from the 80s, I looked at more recent movies, I looked back at the original comics, and that surprised me that there's a segment 
in the original comic, which is adapted to the 80s cartoon, where Dreamy Smurf makes a birthday wish, and every Smurf, their birthday wish has to come true, and the whole village has to make it come true. And Dreamy wants to go to outer space to go see somewhere else, someplace new. And it terrifies the rest of the town so much that he wants to go somewhere that they drug him. They pretend he went to outer space by impersonating like the most racist caricatures oh. you can think of. And they're super obnoxious so that he'll never want to go somewhere else ever again. And that blew my mind, especially because HBO curates their Smurf episodes very carefully. There are episodes they air and episodes they or have for streaming and the episodes they do not have for streaming. And that was allowed to be streamed for children on HBO. And that tripped me out. I was like, I was not expecting that episode. I was not expecting that kind of caricature, that kind of reaction, but also that HBO being careful of, of which episodes they allow on or not for reasons of sexism or whatever allowed that episode to slip through. I was like, wow, you know, um, so I'm really learning doing these, uh, doing these chapters and doing these deep dives into these universes because they're not all ones that I'm familiar with as an adult or, or some of them that I'm, I'm just not familiar with, uh, to begin with. Yeah, and one th an earlier article you wrote was about how the distinctions between high art and low art, so-called, are vastly overblown. And you can see with the wide array of material that you cover that you can find different values in different things regardless of how, how they're designate as having quote-unquote artistic merit yeah i mean I, I always say in some strange inexplicable way late night softcore porn movies are the most emotionally affecting narratives on television and huh. my evidence for that is that every single person gets sucked into those when those come on everyone you're in a room with people everyone will start watching and what's going to happen and then they get to the cheesy sex scene and everyone's like oh it's a cheesy softcore porno and nobody pays attention anymore but up until that moment an entire room will get sucked into those and it's because they're the cheapest most direct attention getting melodramatic narratives i think yeah it well, I mean, it all comes down to the way in which they're produced and what the creators are trying to elicit from the audience. And this is where, like, a lot of the distinctions start to blur because I'm thinking about how as much as there's all this stuff about superhero movies being disposable entertainment and of course the hilarious overreactions of hardcore fans every time someone significant poses this there's also like serious movies can definitely have their limits there are plenty of movies that were clearly designed as quote-unquote oscar bait like the green room which won an academy award to the appreciation of almost nobody yeah, I mean, definitely there are movies that are, these are made to win awards. They're made to get buzz, and no one remembers anything about the movie a year later. Even some of the big popcorn movies, I think, like Avatar. Avatar was the hugest movie. It was the biggest thing. It's going to spawn this. It's going to do that. But even fans of Avatar, if you ask them to just explain to you, walk you through Avatar... They remember a couple scenes. They don't really remember the movie. It was, yeah. you know, um, and there are a lot of very serious movies in that same way. And then there's stuff that's made very cheaply or for very niche audiences that 
they really go the mileage. They, you know, they're swinging for the fences. And it amuses me when we have the conversation, the conversation comes up about superhero movies or comic book movies, which I always think they're two very different things, but they're, you know, they're going to be related. So they're related. But when people get upset that this director is not impressed with this movie or this franchise of movies, my entire life, I've been interested in certain things that maybe were not mainstream or not widely mainstream. But also in, in my own household growing up, there was kind of an unspoken rule with my younger brother that if he was in the house, especially if he had friends over, my mom or I did not watch things we wanted to watch because they embarrassed him. And so my head is not really set up to get mad that somebody's not interested in directing a movie for Marvel and Disney, or they're not caught up completely on the politics of the Snyderverse versus whatever DC will do next kind of thing. And you... It's, Oh, just a note, you retweeted something from Martin Scorsese, which is just him geeking out over John Carpenter, who famously directed genre films like Escape from yeah. New York, but wouldn't be considered in the same way as a Marvel movie. Well, and that's, yeah, I mean, I think with Scorsese and... There is a thing with Scorsese where I understand when people are turned off by him even being in a conversation because there are so many times that we've had to deal with someone who's built their entire personality around misunderstanding one Scorsese movie. But I will say um, with Scorsese's uh, The Big Shave, that is probably my favorite war movie and one of my favorite horror movies. And it's only five minutes long. It's very short. You can find it on YouTube. But it's, it's, it's tense. It's terrifying. It's incredibly political. And it's also a very crass sort of genre practical effects movie. Um, I think when Scorsese or when someone, some of these people, when they talk about the Marvel movies or they talk about these current superhero movies, they mean a very specific way of making a movie and a way that the movie is not going to be the director's movie anymore, much more than they mean superpowers or a genre. It's the politics behind the whole thing often. And I kind of agree. I can't watch the last two Avengers movies, the really long ones. I haven't made it through either one of those. I can't do it. It's just not for me. And I love that other people love them. I love that other people are excited about them. There are other things that I will watch that are four hours long and I am perfectly happy with. But to try to make it a political thing or a social, you know, socio-political thing where these directors are hating on good fun or they just, you know, they're jealous because they're not getting hired to do these things. And you look at where a lot of Scorsese, to bring it back to Scorsese, a lot of his work is in documentary. A lot of his work is in uh cleaning up and preserving older films or genre films even that are being disregarded and are going to get trashed. And to me, that's a little more important even than is he going to direct the next Spider-Man movie or is there going to be, an there's always going to be another Spider-Man movie. That, you know, horse leapt the gate a long time ago. Yeah, and... You're not missing that much with the last two Avengers movies mechanically because in terms of the sum of their parts, most of it is just a big fetch quest for the Infinity Stones twice. I mean, I thought I might be lost coming back into movie Marvel movies after that. Like, I haven't seen these. I can't get through them. Like, I'm not going to understand. And so far, I haven't had any problem. Yeah. There's no big thing of like I don't know what happened there so I'm not uh, yeah I don't feel I don't feel lost on them which is a 
a good thing for the you know current movies, I guess. Yeah. So tying into the big thing you wrote about New X-Men by Grant Morrison and a variety of artists, there's that seems to be a place where those lines between high art and low art are really blurred because you go in of the scope of the ambition with what the writer was trying to do with the characters and how many different influences they bring into it and the fact that it is still an X-Men comic that was solicited based on the books not selling as well as they had at the time when the X-Men had just hit the movies and they weren't tapping into any of that audience. Yeah, I mean, there was real resistance. And doing research for the book, which is called Examining New X-Men, Mutant Thoughts, Examining New X-Men, the early 20th, uh, 21st century and us, doing the research for that and looking at interviews, looking at contracts, they really offered Grant Morrison the moon and Grant did not take huge advantage of that. The, the, the eventual, they offered them a percentage of, of Marvel, which right now would be big bank uh, with the movies and everything. They did not take that on. But the contract for New X-Men gave them uh, incredible veto powers, ability to choose their own artists. The initial plan was that Frank Quietly was going to draw the run and even if it was late, we're not going to worry about late anymore. This is for eventual collection. And within the first issue may not even have released yet. And that contract was already being disregarded. So there was wow. is this wonderful contract to be like heaven to sign. And they sign and it didn't really come off that way. And there were renegotiations and it was a very rocky road from there on until they quit. Yeah, that I remember as a fan who was 15 whining a lot about the, the book when it was solicited because of how different it looked from anything I'd expected and actually really loving it when it finally came out. Well, I love um, every so often we get a chance, and it comes in cycles, it seems, where Grant Morrison will just do promo for a comic. It's not even the comic getting even out yet. It's just promo. And he will get an audience terrified of the book. Um, they did this with um, the Fantastic Four book, One, Two, Three, Four. I remember the promo for that and the audience, people were terrified. Fantastic Four fans were up in arms. Do not let them write this book because it will be this and that and they'll ruin everything. And then it comes out and everybody loves it. It's great. And New X-Men, they were still being very provocative at the time uh, in their promo. And so there were certain promo things for New X-Men where they were just trying to rile people up. They were very happy to talk about how sexy Wolverine should be. And the, the first movie had just come out with Hugh Jackman. It was a huge thing. And at the same time in the comics, if you read the comics, there's one from about four months before Grant Morrison comes on where Jean Grey refers to Wolverine as the ugly one. Which is weird in character, for one thing, but it's also, that's how they were approaching that character at that time. While Hugh Jackman was this huge breakout thing, they were trying to double down on that. He's the short, ugly one. He's the ugly one. He's the, whatever. And, um, you know, you had the Wolverine run that ran at the same time as New X-Men, where Wolverine is a homophobe for some random right. reason. And... That's how Marvel was approaching. And so Grant Morrison was constantly talking about how sexy Wolverine was, that Emma Frost is trans. Several interviews, several con appearances, Grant Morrison would be like, I've written Emma Frost 
as if she was trans, as though she was trans. And so you had that going on. There's the issue, the silent issue, and Grant Morrison explained that in promo as, I'm going to have Jean Grey go swimming in a sea of sperm. Yeah, she's going to be covered in sperm, and Emma Frost is going to be choked on something. I have to spell it. The letters are P-N-E-I-S. And readers and, and speculators freaked out, and he's they're going to ruin the book. They're going to ruin the book. And you read it, and it, it makes great sense, and it's a beautiful issue and a very evocative, symbolic comic, which was redone last year or the year before by a different team uh, doing a, a kind of note-by-note uh, replay that has no evocation to it and no beauty to it at all, in my, in my opinion, at least. Well, you brought that up. That was by Jonathan Hickman, Russell Grotterman, except instead of Xavier, they were going into the mind of Storm, and the imagery just seemed to be very stereotypical depictions of Africa and African animals because Storm, having grown up in Cairo and and Kenya, apparently represents the entire continent. It was really hard to read um, the, the giant size, the new giant size X-Men's. I, I read three of those, I think, in like a planet sized uh, during the research. And it's not my thing. I'm happy for whoever's happy for it, I guess. But that one and the Phantom X one, I had like some anxiety stuff going on because that one, it just felt so racist to me that they just need to represent Africa. And so they've got a giant elephant and it's tr giant trees and giant elephants and there might be a giraffe in there for some reason. And the issue that they're mimicking is so specific in its symbolism uh, about ableism and incestuous worries. And so you've got Charles Xavier being trapped by images of wheelchairs and crutches and having this anxiety belief that he almost killed his mother and caused her to um, miscarry because he tried to kill his sister in the womb. And we don't know if any of this is true or not. He's just seeing all of this or feeling all of this. And there's a snow globe where he and his mother are getting married in the snow globe, but the snow in the snow globe is semen. And it's bizarre, but it means something. It, yeah. it, you know, it, it pointed towards something. And the ones in, in, the, Afri in the, the storm issue, it was just kind of, well, she's black from Africa. Right. Um, the Phantom X one, they cut out uh, Eva completely, and it just felt very weird to me that she's not even in the flashbacks that you have a um, for, for listeners who are unfamiliar or, or just need reminding Phantom X and Eva are two parts of the same body. Uh, they have separate minds more or less. Um, she is the nervous system of the body and some of the sensory apparatus and he is the meat and the bone. And right. in the follow-up, in, in, in the Hickman follow-up, they just remove her completely. She's gone. It's a very masculine Phantom X, um, worried about his, his brother now, which we had not previously known about instead, which makes it a, you know, and I'm not against like a homosocial story if they wanted to do that, but it felt really weird to like de-queer a character or unstrange a character in order to do this very generic, I must save my brother, I can't save my brother tale. Oh, well, yeah, one thing worth noting is that this these comics were written starting 21 years ago. And since then in 2000, Grant Morrison came out as non-binary. So, and, that announcement was 
not really a surprise to anyone who'd been following their career and their interests. Yeah, though it was really great that they came out like that in an interview talking about how younger people than them had more ability to understand their different gender identities and more support for that. And yeah, that it, was gone. No, go ahead. No, well, I was gonna say, that was that was such a wonderful feeling when when they came out and the interview in which they did it was a wonderful interview and it brought up so many wonderful ideas. And it's also that it's the X-Men historic of course it's the heart of the thing is that it's a metaphor for any minority group and the civil rights struggle that can be applied to almost any real world group but historically it's been written entirely by cis white men with only a few exceptions and while morrison came out as non-binary. They are also very, very white. Oh, do we do we tell this do we tell the don't call me a white man story? I suppose we have to, because even there you can't just excuse the problematic parts of people you admire, you right? It is very uncomfortable, and I, I understand where they're coming from. Um, I was part of a anthology a few years well, I guess a few years ago, like ten years ago now, uh, that was Native writers, um, Indigenous writers, and Irish writers, and it was very much hinged on colonialism and language and identity. And so I, I have a great deal of sympathy and empathy for all British colonies. And I understand, you know, feeling that ethnic divide. But yes, Grant Morrison did apparently yell out to a um, fan at a convention who was asking about an all white team uh, who were being called, what are they called, the engineers or something of the DC universe? I don't know. Is it like when architects, Marvel had the, the architects? Yeah, it was the, uh, yes, the, uh, the architects, yes. And uh, they were doing 52. And they asked how they felt about it being all white men. And Morrison kind of got irate about that and told them not to call him white, that he is not white, he is Scottish and he is colonized, they are colonized. Um, and I understand the impetus there. I understand the drive. And I'm sure that was not something they meant to say at that moment. That was a moment of frustration, uh, at, at least. But it doesn't quite bear out. They are still a white European. Yeah. And it's these kind of situations are frustrating because like in one of the things that I love so much about New X-Men is how much it evolved the way characters deal with these issues of being other because before this the X-Men were very much kind of a liberal integrationist team as well as like they had secret identities. Xavier by day pretended to be a mutant. He he was a, obviously he's a mutant, but he pretended to be a human expert on mutants who would go on speaking in public about how mutants aren't all bad. As and of course, when they're superheroes, the whole thing seems to be designed just to appeal to he, humans, like. We're, we're just like the Avengers, even though we're mutants. And with Morrison, not only did Xavier come out of the closet, so to speak, but the school became public, open to all mut mutants instead of just whatever runaways they could rescue. There was a much greater focus on mutants as a culture with their own fashions, their own languages. 
and that in a lot of ways that seems to be very ahead ahead of where it was at the time it really pushed things uh, ahead reading especially the the previous few years the the x-men books even the ones that i really liked had become locked down in something that was very toxic at its core and very regressive at its core very regressive the the arc right before morrison comes on which was all written by scott lobdell as a crossover everyone is a stereotype of some kind like just cardboard stereotype magneto crucifies charles xavier uh women are standing around with their you know tits out kind of thing this is that's all the book was it was this kind of big splashy images and a little bit of emotion and a bunch of regressive politics and everybody was hyper straight and when grant morrison came on things got very queer very fast they did not get as queer as they could have they did not get as queer as it was plotted to be there are things like like beast coming out yeah. Beast saying i'm gay that was always going to be a story about crash and burn and everyone telling beast don't say that because they're even emma in that it's like don't say well, emma doesn't say don't say it but scott says don't say it gene says don't say it and it's because up until that point the x-men like that core group of x-men had all been staying in the closet as much as they could. Beast used to wear an apparatus to make him stand straighter. Um, you know, Angel used to strap down his wings. Scott has his glasses. They all had these ways to pass. And passing was a huge lesson of the Xavier School. If you went to the Xavier School, you learned how to pass. Nightcrawler goes to the Xavier School. He learns how to use that holographic projector. Um, it was such a big thing and it's a weird politic um, for a school especially but to continue into the early 21st century it was time to let go of that and I know fans were really upset and uh, even Chris Claremont said that uh, Grant Morrison ruined the X-Men because Charles came out or was outed because it's not really Charles in his body. It's it's his sister in his body who outs him. So he was outed. He didn't really come out. But, I, you know, Chris Claremont, who wrote X-Men for decades, was like, that ruined the X-Men. That and it's, seems well, very hypocritical of him, given how many he, times the X-Men changed under him. Yes, it is. Um, I don't know. I know that there was friction there. Uh, between the two writers, and I don't want to speculate on them personally, but there are interviews with both of them in Tom DeFalco's uh, book, uh, Creators on X-Men. And it is fascinating to see them talk about each other in their interviews, because it's a very different tone between Grant Morrison. Chris Claremont is so wonderful. He established all this that I'm playing with, and now he catches the things we don't catch. And you go to Chris Claremont's interview and Grant Morrison ruined the X-Men and doesn't care about the X-Men because they came on for five years and left. Uh, it's well, true. We can't all be on the title for 17 years, then yes. come back. Um, so, there, you know, I think it was time for a lot of change. It was time for some breaks. But the book also had planned changes and planned some more obvious elements that were just not allowed. And that I think comes in from when Marvel, the Casada era launched, they really wanted to just try stuff. And it very quickly became a thing of, no, we have to be commercially savvy about this. And 9-11 plays heavily into that. Yeah, there are certain it's... things where they did a book right before 9-11 called The Brotherhood, which is a pro-terrorism kind of comic. And it's a terrible comic. Uh, it was written anonymously at the time. We now know who the writer is. I'm not going to name them because I don't want them to be blamed for this terrible comic that they wrote. But 
after 9-11, you, you can't do that. You can't even consider that side of things. And so in New X-Men, when they deal with terrorism and particularly Magneto, we have that issue where they go to Genosha and they're building a statue and Magneto's recorded voice speaks for the ghosts of the dead in a terrorist action as a supposedly old dead terrorist. And it turns out later this was all a trick and a trap. And of course we fell for it. We all fell emotionally. Oh, he said these wonderful, you know, big things and cares so much. And no, he doesn't. He's still Magneto kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's like the biggest sticking point, even amongst people who like it, that there's this whole arc with Magneto faking his death, infiltrating the school behind the metal mask of a character called Zorn, who's supposed to be this Chinese healer with a star for a brain. Then once he makes his big play and defeats the team from inside and takes over New York, he completely devolves into this drug-addled, buffoonish version of himself who's impulse, who's very explicitly in doing the same kind of concentration camp gas chamber tactics that he endured as a child in his Holocaust origin story. And there's a lot about that that's problematic, but at the same time, Magneto was never conceived of as a Holocaust survivor. In his early appearances drawn by Jack Kirby, he's like goose-stepping with his minions down Central American countries taking over. Yeah, Magneto was very much, you know, a Hitler analog or Nazi analog in those those early issues. And even with growth and all the growth that happened, Magneto was only not a horrible mass murdering supervillain for like five years real time at most. And then 1991 goes right back to being, that's mass murder in um, the, what is it called, New, New Genesis or Third Genesis or whatever that launched the adjectiveless X-Men. He's a murderer there. We go to Fatal Attractions where he commits mass murder globally. Um, to it, it, So he keeps committing these mass murders. And then the arc right before Grant Morrison comes on is about the X-Men having to go to Genosha because Magneto is setting up death camps and being terrible. And he literally crucifies Charles Xavier in that, um, that arc, that crossover. And so when, when Grant came on, I think so many of us had not been reading X-Men for a while that it felt like it was this big shift from good behaving Magneto of 1987 to drug-addled, confused, lecturing the thin air Magneto who has to die. But when you look at it in context, we had a decade of Magneto just being dragged around from story to story, mass murder to mass murder. We've not had, to my knowledge, a storyline since where Magneto has gone full villain for any extended period of time. So I think even though it's a flawed arc, and I think the arc really shows how stressed Grant Morrison was uh, at the time, they quit doing that arc, um, very publicly quit. So I think the arc shows that stress, and it is flawed, but if it has one success, it's that it's the last time anybody did full villain Magneto. And we all realized Magneto doesn't want it. The X-Men don't want it. We as fans don't want it. We don't want to see it again. It hurt to see it. Yeah, and it does bring the point that in the years since Morrison left early 2004, Oh, their legacy definitely hangs over the entire franchise, but a lot of stuff has either been deliberately changed back or written in such a way where it just fits back into the kind of traditional soap opera superheroes, the 
franchise had been before that. It's an interesting franchise because they have to, I mean, they have to have that illusion of change. But the fans are there. We're not cycling in and out that much. Even like I'm, I'm a fair weather X Men fan uh, compared to the diehards who read every issue of every book every month. I don't know what's going on in most of the current X books right now. And when I look, I'm glad I don't know. I don't want to know more. But I keep up. I keep coming back. And I think even the fair weather fans keep coming back. So this politic, this commercial politic of uh, the illusion of change and that you're going to have a new audience every few years, you're not going to have a new X audience every few years. You have the long-term X audience, and if you're lucky, you have new people joining them. So a lot of this where they're going in and kind of wiping slates clean or taking half a character, to me it feels like a very bizarre choice to make and that they make the choice mostly with queer characters or queer coded characters or characters who don't fit a certain kind of representational politic stands out to me. Like we had Beak in the original run uh, as this kid from Europe who looks like a plucked chicken and he falls in love, they have kids, they have a whole, there's all sorts of stuff going on. He confesses to a murder he didn't commit. There's all sorts of stuff going on and we feel this character and their life and what's going on. And in more recent stuff, we've had um, the chicken thing taken away. So he's just some random blonde guy. And then more recently, uh, they were raising their kids with his parents in a on a farm in the Midwest, even though none of them are farmers and his parents, why would they move to America and yeah. move to the Midwest to a farm? It, none of it makes sense. Um, his partner, uh, Angel Salvador, will go through phases where she is heavier set, she's darker skin, she's got kinkier hair and then her hair is straighter and lighter her skin is way lighter she's super thin um these these are choices that are being made and a lot of it they'll say well it's a style choice or i don't believe in style choices and visual representations you're making it's still a choice it's not yeah. If, you, if it was your style, every character would look like that, not just the women or not just the black women or not. Yeah. So, so go ahead. One, before I run out of time, there's a little time up there, but I, it would be absolutely remiss not to mention that even though Morrison was the writer, there were a lot of different artists contributing to this and specifically Frank Quietly, the initial artist who couldn't meet the deadlines of a monthly comic, but when they did show up, they, their work was just like earth shattering. And the way that the book looked, especially in those three issues was such a departure from what superhero comics were at the time. And it's, it, it doesn't seem to have caught on the way other popular X artists like Neil Adams or Jim Lee influenced hundreds and hundreds after them, but like the the way they design things with like the X Men uniforms going from tights and leather unitards to like designer leather gear, the kind of like wide screen cinematic layouts with a heavy focus on backgrounds and ambient detail. Like, what is there a legacy to that too? I think, in a way, the book took too many visual, too many art risks. I think there's the famous uh, Igor Corde issues that he had to do within a few days each issue, which are actually two of my favorite issues of any X-Men anything. And I think that the super fast work looks beautiful. I think it's great. But it was definitely not what an X-Men audience was looking for. The Quietly artwork, which I think is gorgeous and very evocative and very stylish and style forward, 
was maybe a little too style forward. Even the, the first couple issues, uh, Hi-Fi Color did the color, and they had colored X-Books before, but their blood was red for the first time in the Morrison, in the new X-Men issues. And that red blood pops in a very different way than the, the blood where they colored it black before. It was always black blood. And so there are small visual changes that I think they've carried over and they've influenced other artists and other books, but we haven't seen anything, to my mind, as visually forward and as visually advanced as what New X-Men was giving with the different artists who were on that book. They really went, uh, even regular artists like Chris Bachelot went the extra mile with their New X-Men yeah. arc, in my mind. Um, a lot of the X-Men books are much safer in their visuals, which is why Greg Land gets so much work in them because Greg Land is the safest artist you can right. hire. And I don't even mean that as a slight. I mean, really, like, that's... It's, uh, it's acceptable art, and it's not going to raise those kind of issues. But you see characters like the Cuckoos, the Midwich Cuckoos, drawn by Igor Corday or another artist in uh, New X-Men, they have their very specific children and it's very clear they are children and that they have like a, an actual flesh and body and humanity to them and by the time you get to the greg land sort of stuff they it's just an excuse to draw the same hot girl four times and maybe show up her skirt or have her shirt right up Right. That's that's the visual. And so there's a big difference, um, I think, in what New X-Men was doing visually compare, even with artists that continued compared to necessarily what they do on other X-Books since. Well, before this, I also took the time to reread the entire run when sitting. And even aside from Quietly, there's a lot of great artists. There's the one we won't name because he went into white nationalism, but yeah, the others, like the late John Paul Leon, Igor Corday, who's even though his work was ru very rushed and it hurt his career, it, he fit the tone of the book perfectly. And part of it, the kind of beautifying thing seems that it was a point where the book stopped relying so much on it's on word balloons and thought captions and the kind of heavy-handed Claremontian narration when they started actually have the having the confidence to tell the comic story through the comic art. Yeah, if I find it interesting, uh, especially going back and doing the book, how many plot points, because they're not spelled out in those captions, have been altered in later stories or made canonical. Um, and I dealt with that in the book where it's like, not only do we as readers have a hard time with it, but the editors maybe and some other writers have a hard time with characters lying or that things may not be complete truths. And that was kind of fascinating to me that we were trusted in New X-Men to understand that like Phantom X, we're told very quickly he lies all the time. We see him lying. But there's, a, a very, uh, there's an infamous essay by a television and comics writer who's very intelligent, very savvy. And they are very concerned with things Phantom X says because it didn't occur to them that Phantom X might be full of shit. Right. Uh, well, he's, he was clearly playing on the mystery man archetype that yes. the books have, which started with Wolverine and went through guys like Cable, Gambit, and Maverick. Except he seems we, to pl play it a lot straighter where he's not constantly hinting at something. You know, we had the, um, the Weapon Plus stuff, which is Wolverine's secret origin, which in the context of New X-Men is just part of a trap to get him to stay on that satellite and die. It's, we have no evidence that any of that was real or true. It's in context, just part of the trap. But since then, many, many comics have turned every single part of it to be true, except the political parts. And those got taken out. The parts about them using minorities 
and that sort of thing got wiped out, and they, they made it uh, Ted Salas, uh, the man thing, uh. instead. So again, these are choices. When you depol, you know, when you attempt to depoliticize things, which is just repoliticizing them in another direction, it's a choice uh, whether that makes people uncomfortable or not. Uh, but it was fascinating to me to see that that we were trusted, and to be reminded that we were trusted in this. Yeah. And I don't know that a lot of X-Men writers have trusted their audiences. There are, uh, Marjorie Lou is one who's trusted, trusts their audience. Um, Louis Simonson, I think, trusts her audience, uh, Annie Nascenti. But there are, Claremont is famous for overwriting and has had artists quit the books because the captions were correcting the art even though they're not what the art was showing yeah so it had its it had its time where that was a very good thing to do it was helpful to get new readers or whatever or teach us to read visually but the time has passed i think we can we can trust audiences to look at the pictures now yeah and that's a good legacy and so you're still working on the us living fictional cosmogenies book are there any other projects we can look forward to from you? I am starting to work on an opera right now. Oh, nice. Um, I can't talk about who's producing it. I will be able to talk about that soon, but it's going to be big and the, the tour for it is looking fantastic. So I'm very excited about that. And Us Living is going to continue serializing we are on uh, 12, chapter 12 just came out yesterday, and we have 32 chapters and then the epilogue. So we've got another several months of us living coming. A uh, new chapter every Monday, midday. That'll give me time to catch up on Revolutionary Girl Utna, at least. Uh, we're going to start doing Jack Kirby's Fourth World. We did, every chapter is one franchise universe yeah. and then maybe some related things except for revolutionary girl utna where we did seven chapters and jack kirby's fourth world which will also be seven chapters oh nice so those are coming up fairly soon T chapter 20 is the first of those and it's essentially every even number until the end then will be uh, some part of the fourth world well, looking forward to it. And you all should too. The links are in the comments. Thank you so much for coming on, Travis. Well, thank you for having me. This has been great.